This podcast provides audio versions of live webinars. Please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Welcome to Listen In, a bite-sized bio podcast series allowing you to access the best of bite-sized bio webinars wherever you are. Hello and welcome to today's webinar at Microscopy Focus, which is a Leica Microsystems production powered by Bitesize Bio. Today's presentation is titled Breaking the Ice, Freeze Fracture for Cryo-SEM, and it's being presented by Frederick Leroux of Leica Microsystems, Roland Fleck of King's College London, and Benjamin Palmer of Ben-Gurion University. Frederick completed his master's in biology at the University of Ghent, where he gained experience in biological EM sample preparation. During his PhD in the EMAT research group at the University of Antwerp, he specialized in advanced electron microscopy of composite materials and became an EM sample preparation specialist. In 2016, he joined Leica Microsystems as an application specialist in nanotechnology. He uses his multidisciplinary background and broad microscopy experience to improve EM sample preparation for various materials, including polymers, composites, biological and industrial materials. Roland Fleck has developed specialist knowledge of freeze fracture and freeze edge preparation of tissues and wider cryomicroscopic techniques from his fundamental research into cellular in injury at low temperatures and during cryopreservation regimes. As director of the Centre for Ultrastructural Imaging at King's College London, he supports advanced three-dimensional studies of cells and tissues using conventional room temperature and cryo-electron microscopy. He is a visiting professor of the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences at the University of Copenhagen and professor of the UNESCO Chair in Cryobiology of the National Academy of Sciences of Ukraine at the Institute for Problems of Cryobiology in Kharkiv. Ben Palmer studied chemistry as an undergraduate at Cardiff University in the UK and continued there for a PhD with Kenneth Harris, where his work on polarized X-rays led to the development of the X-ray birefringence imaging technique. Ben moved to the Wiseman Institute as a postdoc in 2014 to work in the group of Leah Adadi and Steve Weiner. In June 2019, he started his current position as assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry at Ben-Gurion University. Ben explores the field of organic biomineralization and is interested in how organisms make and use organic crystals to manipulate light for different optical functions, particularly in visual systems. After today's session, I will be putting your questions to Frederick, Roland and Ben, so please type your questions as they come to you into the questions box, which appears on the top right of your screen. So now we'll hear from Roland. So we're here to discuss the uh, freeze fracture and um, I'm here to give a bit of an overview and background to the technique and its application. Um, so probably the best place to start is where freeze fracture developed from. So essentially for freeze fracturing, what we're trying to do is fracture, break a sample. Um, and one of the really nice things about it is it, it tends to form a fracture plane through the tissue, which tends to follow the, the weakest planes in the tissue. So tends to follow the hydrophobic planes, principally membranes of the surface of organelle. This is one of the really great things about freeze fracture because it allows you to actually look at membrane organization inside a, a cell or a tissue in really high resolution. And actually, once you actually have both of these surfaces cleaved, assuming you use a double replica approach, you can collect both halves and clear them, and then actually use these for, for studying both the, the inner and outer leaves of, of that particular fracture plane. 
In the bottom of the slide, you'll see some of the, the, the traditional historical base fracture instruments. Essentially, there were um, three main companies manufacturing these, uh, Baltech, um, which are the, the four here on the left-hand side of your screen, and then Cressington from the UK, and uh, Reichert Yule with the Clarence Fract in, in the bottom right. All of these systems work in exactly the same way. They have a cryostage inside them. The chamber itself is a high vacuum environment. And somehow you have to introduce your sample, ideally without too much contamination, into the chamber to allow it to be fractured and then prepared um, as a replica for viewing later on. Now, before you even get as far as the instrument, probably the most important thing is how do you actually um, prepare your sample for fracture? Now, it has to be vitreous. Um, we can't really work with, with crystalline states of water. Um, it's pretty detrimental to the ultrastructure of the cells. Um, so the target here is to really um, achieve a vitreous state of your sample. Historically, in some of the original uh, breach fracture studies, people were using chronic protectants, sugar solutions, to help with vitrification by plunge freezing samples into liquid nitrogen. Um, this is okay. It does work extremely well. However, it does tend to impose some osmotic stress on your tissue. In the ideal world, we'd like to vitrify the material without the presence of any cryoprotectant or fixatives or other chemical fixatives and the like. So there's two great ways to do this. There's the plunge freezing approach, um, which really sort of mimics the approach developed by Jacques Dubuche and Ken McDowell, uh, with plunge freezing the sample into an intermediate cryogen or using the high pressure freezer. Um, I will discuss both of them as we go through the presentation. The high pressure freezer has the advantage of, of a greater depth um, or volume of vitrified material, which means it's a much more amenable to tissues and tissue biopsies for freeze fracture than perhaps the plunge freezing approaches. Once you've got the sample into the freeze fracture system and you're able to actually fracture it, you actually have what's really a very, very sophisticated and expensive freeze dryer. And by that, I mean that under these vacuum conditions and cryogenic vacuum conditions, you can actually freeze dry or etch away some of the water from when you, within your uh, tissue. And this is important because the tissue itself is really con consisting of membranes, lipids, and the like, and uh, a, a water phase that's like dissolved space. And if you can etch away, remove some of this water, it actually helps reveal some of the structures which you might be interested in looking at. And you can see here from the diagram, this is just a, a, a table showing the etching rate at different temperatures and different pressures. And essentially what you'll see is the colder the, the stage temperature, the slower the rate of etching. In fact, down at these very, very low temperatures, minus 160, minus 150, 140, the rates of etching are so slow, you'd almost not be removing any material in, in, a, in a meaningful period of time. And this allows us to control the degree of etching which you apply to your freeze fracture replica before you actually view it. So the workflow itself, and we're going to look at initially at the traditional freeze fracture workflow. So essentially what we have is an approach where we vitrify the material, um, flash freeze or quickly freeze a sample, uh, either in liquid nitrogen directly or using a more sophisticated approach of plunge freezing and high pressure freezing. This is just to uh, cryo-immobilize the cell and components i.e. lock them in their, their native state. Once you have these frozen tissues, you can then fracture them under vacuum in the freeze fracture instrument. And this breaks it along its, its weakest lines, essentially plasma membranes, surface of organelles, and the like. The um, surface ice can then be removed by freeze etching, sublimation approach, which I showed in a previous slide. 
And now you're actually at a point of actually thinking about making your face fracture replica. So the first thing you do is you buy a platinum carbon or other heavy or, or, or other contrasting metal from a fixed angle of 45 degrees. It can be higher, but in most cases we start at 45 degrees as a, as a normal shadowing angle. And this builds up the coating of this metal um, with a thicker layer in the, on the surfaces which are facing the direction of the gun and the areas which are away and shielded from the gun by the higher topography of the sample, they get much less this platinum carbon coating. And when you consider this from an electron microscope point of view, because this will ultimately be viewed in a transmission electron microscope, as the electrons pass down through the sample, the electron dense areas with lots of metal coating will, will become denser and the electron being here will pass through much more easily creating a, a lower area of contrast in your specimen. And this is exactly how you build up your image from a pre-fracture replica. However, you can also see here that my metal coating is not continuous. There's a great big gap here. So if I try to collect this replica, it would fall apart and, just, and, and separate. So to keep it together in one piece, what we do is we apply a carbon layer on top to essentially stick the whole replica, metal replica together and allow us to actually process it. Then the biological material has to be removed, and this is normally done by cleaning in an acid or Clorox type solution. This can be two, two days in, in chromic acid, followed by 24 hours or so in sulfuric acid. And I'm going to show another technique later on, which is slightly less aggressive than using these, these highly concentrated acid solutions. But ultimately what you're left with is a replica. This is a cast for what, for a better description, of the surface of the of, of the cell and tissue which you fractured. And it's this replica which you actually look at in the transmission electron microscope. Now, one of the first and the original ways we used to do this was actually looking at open carrier. So in this case, your sample actually just sits on top of your, your planchette or your, your pre-fracture carrier, and it's, it's frozen, vitrified by plunging it into an intermediate transition. This sample is then mounted onto the freeze fracture block, transferred into the high vacuum chamber of the freeze fracture instrument, and then fractured very carefully by skimming the knife across the surface of the sample. And this is normally done by taking a single skim section in much the same way as you would with an ultramicrotome, lowering the knife a little bit, taking another skim off the top, lowering the knife and taking another skim off the top to actually form a fracture plane into the top of this surface. Whilst bearing in mind that the vitrification depth is probably quite limited, probably in the region of 10 to 20 micrometers, it could be less than this, so you can't cut too deep, otherwise you'll end up in, in a poorly frozen piece of tissue, which is not interesting to look at. And these types of approaches have been used extensively to look at plant cell organization and membranes, uh, particularly in association with cold acclimation in plants. So for now we've got the concept of actually fracturing these surfaces, um, the slightly flow for just sort of a, a large lump of tissue on top of each fracture carrier, but you need to think more in, in more detail about what's actually present on these um, samples. We all know that the, the membranes of these cells are essentially bilayers, by that they have two layers, an outer and an inner layer. And the original nomenclature for each fracture replica designated the outer area as the extracellular space, get called, called the e-half and the inner inner space tends to call the cytoplasm now would be referred to as a protoplasmic space so the p-half so essentially you have two halves available of your membrane bilayer 
If you consider it at a slightly higher magnification, this is probably a hydrophobic hydrophilic state with the two bilayers, possibly with some membrane proteins associated with them. And if I can cleave straight through the middle of this bilayer and separate the two and collect these, these two faces, essentially I'll have an E-surface, the extracellular facing layer of this membrane, the E-face, the inner membrane part of that particular surface of the E-half, and then the opposite side of that, the P-face, the P-surface, and the P-half, which may or may not have some of these proteins um, associated with them. One thing you have to consider quite carefully for these traditional prefractual replica is the impact of actually shadowing from a fixed angle. And one of the great challenges is actually to orientate the replica correctly. And if you rotate the sample through the, 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 the photomicrograph through 180 degrees, you can actually invert the topography of your replica. And this is just an optical illusion due to the different levels of shadowing on each of the membranes. And traditionally, you arrange your, your micrograph with the shadowing from the bottom right to the top left of the image. And that will give you the correct topography for your image. And this is just an example of what a freeze fracture replica would look like. Um, this is from an Arabidopsis plant cell. This is the surface of the cell. You can see the plasma membrane, the plasmatism matter present on, on the membrane surface. You can see membrane part particles, these are the proteins on this particular surface. And down here, a chloroplast envelope with thylakoid membranes um, stacked inside the, the outer surface of the chloroplast itself. And I mentioned earlier on slightly more sensitive ways to clean the replica. So Fujimoto in 1995 published a, a paper where he actually used um, SDS um, with the TRIS-HCL sucrose solution um, to, to essentially gently remove the biological component from the replica whilst leaving some of the, 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 the components of you know, the, the proteins, etc embedded in the replica, which allowed him to immunogold label the replica surface itself. So this is a really sophisticated way of actually confirming with immunolabeling that the surface you're looking at is the one that you are you were intending to look at in the first place. Um, it's akin to the this types of approaches we use with Tokiashu technique, for example. But if we bring things up to really the more modern um, or present day where different instruments are available which which offer faster and more regular ways to actually look at these, these fractured surfaces. So one of the big advents in the last 10-15 years in electron microscopy has been the, the development of improvements in, in field emission gun scanning electron microscopes. And when combined with the cryo stage, essentially you have a very, very high performance, high resolution instrument, which can directly look at these fractured surfaces without the need to go through the trouble of dissolving away the biological material, collecting the replica, and then viewing it in the TEM. One of the other real advantages of this is actually the, the fractured replica or fractured surface is completely intact. So you have a really large area to look at at high resolution in your trial field emission scanning electron microscope. And this is distinctly different from the situation with traditional face fracture replica, which tend to be extremely small and very easy to, to, to fragment during the cleaning process. And often you spend a lot of time looking at very, very small areas of replica whilst trying to understand the membranes that you're interested in. And why is this advance in, in 
and instrumentation have been possible, essentially due to the development of in-lens, semi-in-lens SEMs, which allow really high levels of resolution at lower energies, which don't damage the sample um, in, the, in the vitreous state. To, to coat these samples, we want to put down the finest grain structure possible. There's really little point putting a, a low resolution grainy uh, metal surface on top of your high resolution uh, potential of the membrane, because that will merely obscure the structures of interest. And the tendency of to aim for higher melting temperature metals, because um, they tend to provide finer grain structures, and eva evaporating in the presence of carbon, so essentially evaporating platinum and carbon together to get a smaller grain size um, on the surface of the sample, which improves resolution. And there are three essential coating devices available to you. There's conventional sputter coating, uh, planar magnetron sputter coating, which improves the, the performance and coating accuracy of the sputter coater, or the electron beam evaporation sources, which will get you down to around about one nanometer or so in the scanning electron uh, mode on your FEGSEM. And that's the approach which, which is commonly used in the, the free fracture instruments, which I showed at the beginning of the presentation. And just to show where this would apply, if you were considering it from a biological standpoint, uh, at the bottom, you can look at gross um, structures on perhaps the surface of instrument with a sputter coater. Um, your microtron coaters will reveal finer structures, perhaps associated with a bacterium. And your electron beam guns will really get down to very, very fine structures, perhaps um, DNA structures and, 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 and the like. We hope you're enjoying this episode of Listen In from Bite Size Bio. To access the visuals of this webinar, please see the episode description for a link to the full presentation. Okay, and this gives you an example of how a free fracture instrument would be adapted for um, a field emission gun SEM. Essentially, the free fracture device remains the same. It's a high vacuum chamber with a cryogenic state, but attached to it is a vacuum transfer shuttle, which allows this frozen um, sample to be transferred clean um, under high vacuum at cryogenic temperatures to the cryo SEM for viewing. And in the bottom corner, um, you'll see the current generation uh, freeze fracture instrument from Leica, which I believe will be discussed later on during today's webinar. And one of the great advantages here is the concept of actually using the high pressure freezer to vitrify the sample. I mentioned at the beginning of the presentation that this increases the vitrification depth available to you quite significantly. And you can use these um, conventional high pressure freezing planchets which essentially means that once the sample is frozen and vitrified inside the sandwich of the planchette, it's kept clean until such time as you wish to fracture it. And in this case, the sample is transferred into the free fracture device, sealed, so therefore this entire surface in here is unfractured and perfectly clean. It is fractured in a single fracturing action, which gives a very clean fracture phase. And then on top of this, the metal coating is applied and the sample is transferred to field emission scanning electron microscope for viewing. So we're just going to conclude the presentation with a few examples of what you can get to see. So this is Euglena bacillus. Um, it's four nanometers platinum carbon applied for multi-angle rotational shadowing approach. So this is a Mars coating approach. And you can see from the background, which looks quite lacy here, 
that the sample has been heavily etched to remove as much of the water as possible and to really reveal the depth and structure of this euglenoid um, in, in, in all its beauty. And you can see here, it's a, it's a uh, photosynthetic organism, the chloroplast on, on um, here with the thylakoid membranes nicely stacked up, nucleus and the pellicle structure on the surface of the glenoid itself. And you can take this up to reasonably high magnification as you're going to start to reveal um, protein structures in the surface of the pellicle and perhaps actually reveal some stru structures in the surface of the thylakoid membranes themselves. And again, a little higher still on magnification. And here you can see a slightly lower level of etching on this particular sur surface, and you're starting to see some surface detail surrounded by the, the deep etched area. And this is probably a mitochondria. I think there's just an, an impression of the, the, the Christie present in that particular cross fracture. And again, over here, more thylakoid membrane for, for viewing if, if you're so interested. Now, if you went for a light etch, um, so this would have been etched for a shorter period of time at a lower temperature. The previous one would have been etched at minus 90 degrees C, four or five minutes. This would be at minus 110 for perhaps two minutes. You can see here the nuclear pores on the surface of the nucleus. Um, another euglenoid down here with a pellicle structure. This is actually a lift out. You can actually see it's an impression into the 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 surface of the, the vitrified material, many other euglenides down here and up here, spreading around the, the whole image and actually quite a nice cross fracture in the bottom left hand corner of, of the field of view. Again, still four nanometer platinum carbon Mars evaporation on the surface. Um, looking at high magnification, the nuclear pores are actually quite clear. Um, the image itself is starting to be affected by the performance in the microscope, because essentially what we're doing here is working in the lower electron detector. So this is not the instrument working at highest performance mode, and you're starting to get to the point where actually the replica resolution is, is exceeding the performance of the microscope at this particular working distance and detector configuration. But you can still reveal some quite nice structures. You can see the Golgi apparatus nicely stacked up again inside field of view. However, if you start to push the field emission um, um, big sense um, to their highest performance and move into the upper electron detection detectors or the in-lens positions, the performance really comes alive and you start to see real surface detail on, on the sample itself. And again, this is a Golgi apparatus um, in all its beauty. You can really start to reveal um, and see small membrane proteins on many of the surfaces. Um, and one of the other things which is really worth noting here is that I actually swapped to a tank from tungsten um, evaporation just to show the versatility of the S900 that it can be used with different metal evaporation sources should you so wish. And a little bit of magnification on a different Golgi. And here you can actually see it stacking up almost like plates um, with the orientation of the fracture plane. Again, tantalum tungsten uh, with a light edge showing the, the euglenon. Actually, there's two of them here uh, lying next to one another. Um, another coating, which is quite often employed, particularly people who are interested in doing elemental analysis in their samples, is chrome. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful to make sure that you've burnt off any of the oxidized chrome layers before you, you use the, the, the chrome source for evaporation. 
but it does give a very nice, almost transparent coating over the surface of the sample. And again, you can see many nuclear lying cross fracture in the field of view. And with that, um, I'm happy to conclude and take questions. Thank you very much. Thanks for that great presentation. Now let's hear from Frederick. Thank you very much for the introduction. So now let's have a look at the more technical aspects of this workflow, starting with a small recap of the full procedure. So we start with a yeast cell, for example. We will vitrify it. We use a knife to fracture it. Then we use a small etching step to even reveal more of that topography. And then we end by a coating with platinum and or carbon. So these are the first steps. And then, of course, it depends on the application. Either we bring the coated sample directly to a cryoseum, and then we can observe the topography, or we bring the sample out of the freeze fracturing instrument, we'll bring it to room temperature, and then dissolve the biological parts, as you can see here, and then we are left over with a film, which is then collected on a TEM grid, and then analyzed using a conventional TEM at room temperature. So this is called a replica. So two applications, but the initial steps are completely similar. So let's have a look at the instruments involved in this process. So the first step is the vitrification. It can be done either with plunge freezing using a slush freezer, as is mentioned here, or with a high pressure freezer. Then we need to start the complete transfer through all of these instruments. And this is done with the VCT 500. This is a shuttle that will bring the sample from the loading instrument to the next instrument, either the ACE 600 or 900. This is the instrument where we will do the um, fracturing, etching, and coating, and afterwards we will again use the VCT 500 to load the sample, in this case, on our cryo-SCM. So now I will bring you to all of these instruments in more detail. So the first step is the freezing. So this is our slush freezer. So basically this is a vacuum chamber, and it has a nitrogen dewire, so you will add liquid nitrogen, also a small container, put it back, and go to the pump mode where it will start to pump to about minus three millibar, and this will create uh, the so-called slush. It's a, a combination of liquid and solid uh, nitrogen, and the temperature is about minus 210 degrees Celsius, and also you don't have the light and frost effect. So this means that vitrification starts immediately upon plunging. And once you can see the slush through the window here in the slit, we will go to the vent, we open, and basically have about one minute, depending on how fast the slush will, will, will actually melt. And we have to plunge freeze a sandwich, a sandwich always of two carriers, either flat to flat, either flat to domed, depending again on the thickness of your sample. And you simply plunge it and keep all of these carriers in the container. So that's the first step. But again, some samples, and basically most of them with higher water content are very challenging. So then you need to switch to a better way of vitrification, and this is through high pressure freezing. As you can see here, this is our EMIs. And basically what is the principle behind is that we have the sample here in the middle plate, and the system will compose this cartridge, which is brought to the high pressure freezing chamber, and nitrogen will pressurize and freeze the sample. And of course, we again need a sandwich, and the best way to freeze is to have two cavities facing each other. So in this case, if you want to freeze 200 micrometer, use 200 micrometer cavities, do not use 200 and flat. This is more for cryofib or freeze substitution. We use 
this setup. And the reason it's very simple, for the fracturing, we will basically displace the upper carrier. So you can see how it will start the fracture in the middle of the vitrified volume. What we can also do to even uh, stimulate the adhesion of the sample in the carrier is to use a scalpel and to make some scratches because you don't want to end up with an empty carrier in your cryo-CM. So this will really um, have much stronger uh, sandwiches. And once we have two of them, we simply add yeast, as is shown here, and we assemble the sandwich and we load it into the middle plate, which is actually here. And once it is loaded, the only thing we have to do is to close the red cover and this will initiate uh, the vitrification process. And afterwards, we can retrieve our sample here by opening the drawer. We take out the storage divar and we disassemble. And in the end, we have, again, similar to the slush freezer, we have these two sandwiches, but of course here, frozen with a higher quality. Depending on the application, whether it's normal free structuring, replica or double replica, we have different holders and assemblies. And, and I will not go too much in detail. If you have any question, do not hesitate to contact us. We're more than happy to give you some extra information here. So going back to the workflow, we have vitrified our sample. Now we need to start a full transfer through all of these instruments. And this is done with the VCT 500. As you can see, it connects to a lot of processing instruments from Leica Microsystems, but it also connects to your vacuum equipment can be a SEM, FIP, Blowbox, TOFSIM, Synchrotron. To give you some more information, how we basically adapt your system is, as long as you have the ports available, we add, first of all, a nitrogen DWAR that is connected with copper bands to the cryo stage. So this is the cryo stage, the copper bands. This is the first part. The second part is a dock. And the dock is, of course, to uh, accept the VCT500. And of course, all of that is controlled by the controller. So this is what we would add to your system. Coming back to the shuttle, of course, we need to load the sample. So the shuttle itself, it's a vacuum cryo transfer. So it is an evacuated shuttle and it has a cryo stage inside. And we have possibility to add nitrogen, of course. And basically inside you see how the holder, this is the, the little tool where we'll uh, add the sample, is also on a cryo stage. And basically we can load and unload by simply um, moving the rod. And you can see that the, the holder is basically um, on the tip of this rod. Depending on the workflow, we have different possibilities for cryofib, uh, replica, uh, fee structuring. So all of these have specific holders, which you can then transfer to all of these instruments. And the way it works is that each holder has these two legs at each side. And by simply rotating the rod 180 degrees, we will lock and unlock the holder onto the cryo stage to really have a firm uh, connection for conductivity. So this is how the mechanical part works. And of course, the first step is to load the samples on the holder and to load the holder in the shuttle. And this is done with the VCM. So basically, as you can see, we can attach the VCT500. We also have a reservoir, so this means that the system will have a chamber, as you can see, a manipulation area, where it will keep always a fixed level of nitrogen. And the, this will be an auto top uh, from the reservoir. So how does this work? So basically here, this is the VCM. The first thing we do is to add the holder. This is a holder for three millimeter carriers. And then in on the, the user interface, you will see that the system is not cooled. So we add nitrogen in the reservoir. And then we are allowed to just choose the level. 
So I like to choose the gas level. And then we simply start the cooling. And this will start to fill the chamber. And basically, at some point, the star is blue, which means that you can load the sample. And the sample can just be loaded. So you just take a tweezer, load the two sandwiches. And once they are in the cavity, use an Allen key to basically uh, secure them in place very tightly. So now this is holder is ready to be picked up by the VCT. So basically, we open the, 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 the cover. We attach the VCT 500. And basically, for each instrument with a dock, the attach and detach procedure is always the same. So it's a controlled way of um, attaching, detaching the VCT 500. So for the moment, it detects the VCT 500. It will show it, and then the attach button will allow you to attach it. So it follows, follows the sequence of opening both of these valves, and then we are ready for transfer. And then basically what you do is you move this part here to pick up the sample. You rotate 180 degrees, and you pull in the holder into the VCP 500, and then you will use the detach procedure, which will actually do the, totally the opposite, closing both um, of these valves, but of course also evacuating the shuttle. And then we have to bring that to the next step for processing. And we have two possibilities, either the A600, which is our modular system, which can have all typical uh, evaporation modes, or we have our dedicated cryo uh, coulter, the A900, which of course only has the, the E-beam. So I'll not go into too much details. For the rest of the webinar, I will uh, basically talk about the A900. As you can see, both of them have the dock for the VCT 500. A quick word about coating, of course, sputtering and E-beam are both possible. But remember that the resolution of cryo-CM depends on the fine, how fine the grain size is of your coating and how thick the coating is. So of course, with E-beam, you have not only the thinnest uh, film because the grain size is smaller, but you also have a very directional coating. So this means that you can create very nice shadows for replica, for example. Going back to an instrument, so this is our dedicated instrument. So here, unlike the A600, we do not feel manually. We have the cryo pump with a line that cools the knife and the shield, and a line that cools the stage. Uh, the shield itself you see here, so this is quite a huge shield that is surrounding the area of the sample. And again, what is very important in freeze fraction or maybe in cryo in general, is that we do not want to have contamination on exposed surfaces. So here, of course, this cryo shield is the coldest um, area in the vacuum chamber, so it will attract all of the contaminants. So this is a huge improvement with the A600, for example. Now here the user interface, so we have here the chamber, we have all of the gates for VCT and, and the E-beam sources, but of course the system is not cooled, so we go to the temperature tab, we simply select temperature control and you will see the, the system will cool, in this case, to minus 120 degrees Celsius. And we see that both the knife and the shield are very, very cold. So these are the ones that will trap all the contaminants. Then we go to the gate step and we will push VCT. And this again allows us to load the sample, similar to what I explained. So from the moment you connect, you have the attach, you press attach, and then it will go through this whole cycle of opening both of the valves. It will mention that it's ready for transfer, and then you can transfer the sample. Again, turning 180 degrees locks this uh, holder onto the cryo stage. So that's the first step. The next step is, of course, fracturing. So in, in this menu, we have the three famous steps of fracturing, etching, and e-beam. So we start with fracturing. 
Here we can decide for the feet and the speed of fracturing, so I will not go into too much detail. But basically, sandwich here is intact, and it will rotate the knife. And now you'll see that it will fracture both of them. And immediately after, the knife will raise and will be positioned above the sample. This is again to trap all of the contaminants if they would be in the crowd chamber. And then we have fractured, we also need to do some etching to increase the topography. And etching can be quite tricky because based on the vapor pressure and the temperature, you will either be in a regime of sublimation or condensation. So we typically operate here between these kind of vacuum levels. So this means that at minus 110, this is a typical lip, um, setting for sublimation, we will be slightly above this line, so we will have a small sublimation rate. And this is what we need to remove some of the water and expose all of the fine structures. So going back to the system, in the etching tab, we can basically, first of all, again, the knife is, will be above the sample, and we can select the minus 110 for one minute, and we press start. And this will basically start a full uh, process uh, of etching. So it will go to minus 110, and then once reached, it will keep the temperature for about one minute, and then it will stop, go back to minus 120. So this is the etching step. So the last step that we still have to do is, of course, the coating. But you see, the knife is still on the sample. And for coating, just to recap, we have fractured, we have etched, and for the coating, there are, of course, different possibilities. Uh, typically, a shadowing coating with platinum is done at 45 degrees, and then a 90 degrees uh, top-up, let's say, with carbon is done to create a complete film. Of course, there are different possibilities. Some people use only platinum with rocking and rotation. Others use a, a sideways, sideways shadowing. So, but again, in the AS900, you can do all of the coatings. And you can see you can rotate the sample, you can rock the sample, or you can do a combination. And again, this gives you the full flexibility to not only produce the, the layer with the finest grain, but also the thinnest possible layer because of all of this rocking. And again, restructuring is all about topography. Topography can create two basically incomplete uh, coatings if you do not rotate and rock. So again, this gives you the full flexibility for coating. Going back to the user interface. So basically here we have platinum and carbon. And basically, you can change all of the settings. So we have checked platinum and carbon. And for example, for the platinum, we have 45 degrees, no movement of the stage. And for the carbon, we have 90 degrees. And you see we have the rocking and also rotation. And then we press Start. And it will actually execute both of these coatings, one after the other. And in the end, it will give you a summary. How does it look like in the instrument? So you see the knife is still above the sample. It will start the E-beam platinum, it opens the shutter, coats 1.5 nanometer, then it starts the other beam at 90 degrees, it opens the shutter, it rocks and rotates, and coats about 4 nanometer of carbon. So this is the whole procedure. And then the last thing is, of course, the unloading. And we follow again, we take out the, the holder, sorry, and then we can do the detach Remember that also the shuttle is evacuated because again, you need to connect it to your vacuum instrument. And then it depends. So now we have it in the shuttle, we can do two things. We either go directly to the cryo-SEM or we go to room temperature and dissolve the biological parts. This is called a replica. 
And basically what it happens, you thaw the sample, you float it in water, you dissolve it in bleach, and at the end you wash it a few times, you collect it on a TEM grid, and this is a TEM image. So this allows you to see all of that fine topography of the cell wall of yeast in this case. And the second possibility is that we can go directly to a cryo vacuum instrument, in this case a cryo SEM. So you see the dock, we load uh, or connect the VCD 500, we attach it and that allows us to load the holder onto the cryo stage and do the imaging. It's what you also see here. So this is how it is loaded uh, onto the cryo stage. And then basically observe the topography. So at the left side, you see a fractured single cell, you see the nuclear pores, you see some of the organelles, and the right side, you see a fractured drosophila embryo. And again, I will not go to too much detail because um, you now have Benjamin Palmer that will tell you something more about how phase fracturing is used to solve particular uh, scientific questions. So thank you very much, and, and now over to you, uh, Benjamin. Thank you for that excellent presentation. Let's hand over to Ben for the next part. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, thank you for the invitation for uh, joining in in this uh, podcast on freeze fracture. So I wanted to tell you a little bit about the research in my lab um, and show how freeze fracturing has been critical to that work. Uh, and I'm gonna illustrate that with um, two short case studies which have been published in the last year. Um, so in my lab, we're interested in um, biological optics and particularly in how animals use um, crystalline materials to um, manipulate light. So these are all examples of optical phenomena in animals that are produced by physical interference, so the interaction of light um, with crystals, in this case, um, guanine crystals. So from the colors of chameleons and fish and various crustaceans to the vision of scallops. Um, so the story is here that by controlling the shape of these crystals, in this case guanine, um, and their assembly, organisms are able to generate an amazingly um, vast array of different um, optical phenomena. Um, so why is guanine useful for optics? Why are these crystals useful for optics? Um, well, this is all to do with the crystal structure of guanine. So guanine crystals are formed from these planar um, hydrogen bonded molecular layers, which are stacked on top of each other by pi stacking interactions. And the crystals have an extremely high refractive index, but critically, this is only in certain directions in the crystal. So the high refractive index is within the plane of the hydrogen bonded molecules here. Uh, and this means that by controlling the shape of these crystals, and the crystal faces that are exposed in those shapes, you can critically control the, the optics um, of these systems. So in my lab, we're trying to understand how organisms exquisitely control crystallization of simple metabolite molecules like guanine to produce this array of different crystal shapes, which in turn produce this array of different um, optical phenomena. And this is part of a uh, European Research Council um, grant on the subject. Um, so that's our question, how do organisms control crystal formation in ways that chemists could kind of only uh, dream of? What are the strategies um, that organisms use to do this? And here we're talking about the chemical, the physical and the biological control mechanisms that understand 
um, uh, that under that underlie sorry this this uh, this crystallization. So the way we do that is the obvious. We look at model crystal forming organisms during development during ontogeny, and we watch crystallization happen. Um, and we watch crystallization using a different um, a variety of techniques, in situ diffraction, um, in situ spectroscopy, but critically, and especially for this talk, um, uh, cryo-SEM. So we do a lot of imaging to look at how the cells which form these crystals change over time. So our workflow is that we um, freeze usually fairly large tissues, which are chemically fixed using the Leica ice uh, high pressure freezer. Um, we then store the samples in liquid nitrogen for a time um, until the day of imaging, where we manipulate the samples using the Leica VCT500 and the cryotransfer device. We then um, transport the samples into this Leica ACE900 um, vacuum chamber, which enables us to firstly fracture um, um, a section through the, uh, through the, the tissues. Um, and then there are two more um, things which we can control with this device, which are really important. One is that we can control um, the etching in the sample, so we can very controllably liberate water from the tissue, okay, which enables us to um, see different organelles um, very clearly um, inside the tissues. And the second thing is that we can coat with different um, metals um, which enables us to image at very high magnification with high resolution. So those are two key parameters that we vary in these experiments. Once we've fractured the tissue and we have a nice um, clean plane through the tissue, we then transfer the sample onto a Zeiss Gemini 300 cryosem device for the imaging. Okay, so that's our question, um, um, which um, is how do organisms control crystal formation so exquisitely. And there had been lots of suggestions raised for the tricks that organisms use to do this from confinement, the use of additives, um, amorphous phases, and lots of other things which have been um, suggested in the past. So I'm gonna to talk to you about two um, uh, case studies, two papers which were published um, in the last year where Freeze Fracture was able to really give us an understanding of what's going on. The first is in uh, this scallop, so I don't know if you know, but I mean, scallops have an incredible visual system, which may surprise some of you. They have hundreds of tiny little eyes which surround the mantle tissue. These eyes are about one millimeter. We published a paper on this a few years ago in the adult organisms, okay? So um, the visual system is unusual because it uses mirrors instead of lenses to produce image. So each tiny little eye has inside it a concave mirror which is built from guanine crystals. Um, and this mirror functions to backscatter light into a focal point on the retina, which lies above that mirror. Okay, but we're not interested in this study on the adult organisms. We're interested in what happens in the juvenile organisms um, and to watch how the crystal forming cells emerge over time. So in the adult, the mirror is made from these beautifully tessellated square guanine crystal tiles, which have the hallmarks of mature crystals, they're faceted, okay, they look like crystals. But um, we use cryo-SEM and freeze fracture to go back earlier in development to explore how the cells which form this mirror um, develop. So this is an image, cryo-SEM uh, cryo image, 
um, of a freeze fractured um, uh, scallop eye, a juvenile scallop eye. Um, and in both of the studies that I'll show you now, freeze fractured are two things. It fractures a plane through the cells and it fractures also a plane through the organelles. Okay, and the key thing for us is to be able to look inside the organelles and inside the crystals to look at the texture of the crystals inside the crystals um, to develop mechanisms um, for understanding crystal formation. Okay, so each single guanine crystal is formed in its own specialized organelles. You can see here that kind of rugby ball or pillow shaped um, organelles. Here you can see one crystal beginning to form, another crystal and other organelles you see that are earlier stages um, of development. And using this combination of freeze fracture and cryo-SDM, we were able to derive a morphogenetic sequence of development of these crystals. Okay, so crystallization starts in a lysosome-related organelle, um, which you see here. This is initially a spherical organelle. No crystal is yet contained within it. At some later stage, the organelle um, elongates into kind of rugby ball shape um, concomitantly with the formation of two fibers that you see here. And it's on top of those fibers that the crystals form, right? So those fibers act as a kind of template for the crystallization. And you can see here, the crystal starts to nucleate on top of those fibers and tracks across those fibers, which kind of guide the growth of the crystal across the organelle. Okay, you can see the crystal growing here. And these are snapshots, of course, um, in, in, in developmental time of the organism. Um, the crystal eventually will reach the other side of the organelle and continue growing and reshape the organelle around it. Um, now, for those of you that don't know cryo-SDM, of course, it involves um, high pressure freezing a biological tissue and kind of trapping that tissue in a close to life state full of water, full of cytoplasm. Okay, so we're really looking at an almost native sample here. Um, and the same sequence is shown here in another technique, um, which is transmission, conventional transmission electron microscopy, where you see the emergence of these two fibers and the nucleation of the crystals um, in between the space that's delimited by those fibers. Here's some um, high magnification um, images of, uh, of the same thing. So here we see like a very, very new crystal, which is forming inside these two um, fibers, which are templating the crystals. And you can see also the texture of the crystals, which is critical to the um, mechanism of their formation. Okay, so you see the crystals are formed from these templates, which eventually will merge, sorry, these, these platelets will eventually merge together to form a single um, coherent crystal. Um, this is a TEM tomogram of the same thing. So we can extract a 3D rendering of the crystal forming organelle at early developmental stages um, using this technique. So this is a cryo-SDM image of the crystal forming in the organelle. This is an equivalent um, M image. And by segmentation, we can show that actually those fibers that you see inside the cryo-SDM are two sheets, which um, template the crystallization. And this, this was a critical result in telling us how crystal shape is controlled, okay? Effectively, these, sheets inhibit growth along certain directions of the crystal and allow the preferential expression of highly reflective faces um, in the crystal, okay? And that makes them optically function, functional, and that's very important for 
for how these crystals are actually useful in terms of the optics of the eye. Another um, passing point is that the morphogenesis of um, the guanine um, organelles very much closely resembled how um, melanin forms. And this was an analogy which we've um, uh, made uh, a point about in the, in the paper, which was just published in, um, in Nature Communication on the subject. So that's one story about how freeze fracture enables us to really look inside the details of the organelle um, or organelles in general and allow us to um, gain new understanding about the um, crystallization um, of, of, of biogenic crystals. Um, this is a very recent story that was published in Science a couple of months ago, um, which is a story about um, camouflage. So these are images of um, larval crustaceans, so these are baby crustaceans that float around in the pelagic in the open ocean. Okay, and th these are lots of different species, so larval lobsters, crabs, um, uh, crayfish, shrimp, prawns, many, many different types um, uh, of larval crustaceans. They begin their life as, as, as many uh, aquatic organisms um, as larvae which float around in the open ocean. Okay, and they have no means of defense, really. Okay, they're kind of washed about by the currents. And one of the strategies that they use to defend against predation is to become transparent. Okay, so these organisms are almost completely transparent, but the place you can't um, um, remove pigment from um, in, in the body is in the eye, right? If you want to see, you have to have absorbing pigment in the eye. And this often... Um, presents itself as, as, as the Achilles heel of these organisms, right? So if it wasn't for um, this reflective device that we've discovered, then these organisms would appear as kind of two black dots which are floating on a transparent background. So we, we noticed that these organisms um, uh, emerge as larvae with this um, very striking reflective structure which sits on top of the opaque eye pigments, okay? And it turns out that this, re this reflector is a camouflage device, okay? So it's overlaying the absorbing pigments in the eye and it's deflecting light away um, from, from the organism. Um, and the idea is that the color of this reflective device matches the color of the background water environment these organisms live in, okay? So this is a, um, a freshwater um, prawn from the Indo-Pacific kind of... Um, lives in these kind of murky green yellow waters and it has a green reflector um, overlying its eye pigment which matches itself um, to the color of the surroundings and the shrimp that we collected from Elat in the Red Sea which live in these beautiful transparent blue waters have these um, blue reflectors okay so the idea is this is a camouflage device which enables the organisms to see but not be seen okay um, and this is a cryo-SEM image of um, a fracture through one of these larval eyes. We were interested to find out what is this reflector made of? Um, how is it tuned to different um, color environments? Um, what are the cells that make this reflector? So this is an, um, uh, a cryo-SEM image of a fracture through the eye. Okay, you can see the um, lenses there. Um, what I've highlighted in here are essentially waveguides which guide the light into the retinal zone, which is shown here in green. Okay, so the light is coming down these waveguides, 
and into the retina, which is shown in blue here. So the reflector is formed in specialized cells um, here, um, which overlay the opaque eye pigments. Okay, so these are the dark eye pigments, which are required for vision, and they're overlaid by these um, reflective cells. The reflective cells are full of these particles, um, and the particles are formed from crystals. Okay, in this case, not guanine, but a molecule called isoxanthoterin. A uh, similar molecule to guanine. Um, so these particles are actually organelles again, okay, housed in specialized reflective cells. And the particles are constructed from hundreds of tiny nanoscopic um, crystals, which are arranged almost like an onion, okay? So you can see the individual crystals here, which are arranged in these kind of concentric lamellae around the hollow core. And they have absolutely fascinating optical properties, which we've elucidated in, in several other papers. So what we found is that the organisms are able to change their eye color simply by changing the, si uh, the size of this um, reflective particle, okay? All the way from deep blue, these are species that are found in uh, the Gulf of Elat, um, to, to green yellow, these are freshwater species that are found in um, yellowy green rivers. And they can do this by tuning the size of the particles from about 250 to 400 nanometers. Some um, organisms are able to, uh, individual species are also able to change their eye color depending on the light condition. Okay, so if you turn the lights off, this particular species had a green eye. If you turn the light on, he has a yellow eye. And the way that they're able to do this is by changing the distance between particles. Um, we are able to rationalize how the optics work here with the help of two collaborators from the University of Cambridge, Johannes Hataja and Lucas Schertel. The arrangement of particles here resembles something called a photonic glass, okay? So this is um, an array of uh, highly reflective particles that doesn't have long-range ordering like a photonic crystal, but has some short-range ordering, and this is called a photonic glass, and we were able to model um, the optical properties um, of this device um, using a combination of molecular dynamic simulations and FTDD um, calculations to show that by changing the particle size and subtly the arrangement of particles, then the structural piece of this photonic glass could be tuned right across um, the visible range of wavelengths to achieve this matching, um, this spectral matching and camouflage in, in different environments. I think we're about done with the time there, so I'm gonna um, thank all of the uh, group that are involved in these uh, studies and also the uh, funders and also to thank you all for, for, for listening. Thank you. Thank you so much, Ben and Frederick and Roland for these great presentations. Um, we have time for some questions and answers now. Um, we have a few questions from the audience already. If anyone else has a question, please feel free to post this in the questions box. Since you were the last speaker, Ben, let me start with a question for you. Um, do all tissue samples behave the same way in terms of their fracturing? Um, we do. We do seem to get. Um, thanks for your question. We, we do seem to get a bit of variation with that. It's a, maybe I can feel, I can pass that question on to Frederick. Maybe I'm not sure why, but it could be to do with the the content of lipids or something, or the um, the hydration levels of the tissue. Um, we just see some tissues from certain animals that are 
seemingly more resistant to etching. So we, for each individual species that we look at or tissue that we look at, we have to optimize um, the degree, the time of etching, the temperature of etching um, to get the best quality images. So that, that, that seems to, we, we just vary that empirically. Um, and maybe this also tells you about um, the content of the organelles or the cells that you're looking at as well. Um, yeah, I, I would uh, agree with you. Um, it's also depend, of course, on the vacuum and the temperature to choose. Uh, but for each typical tissue, you have slight differences. It's, it's something you have to optimize. Yeah, that makes sense. I have to figure it out for every sample. Um, this is a question for Roland that came in during your presentation. Uh, what temperatures were used for freeze etching and cryoimaging? So for the light etches, we tend to etch at minus 110. For the deep etches, uh, normally, normally minus 90. But yours, I showed my presentation, I think Freddie showed as well, depending on the temperature of the stage and the vapor pressure, you can get the same level of etching either by leaving it for longer at a lower temperature or for less time at a slightly higher temperature. But again, it's, it's, it's optimization of the sample and understanding its characteristics, which is important. Um, and Frederick, a question that came in during your presentation, um, at ACE 900, is it possible to exchange e-beam gun without breaking the vacuum inside? Exactly. It's possible. So all of the sources are, are gated. So even during a process, when you suddenly realize that you didn't change the platinum pellet, what you need for evaporation, you can still just, uh, vent the source exchange it. Some people even have a second source to be faster. So yes, that's totally possible. Good to know. <laughs> um, ben, this is a question that came in after your presentation. Um, have you tried using freeze fractured samples for further cryofib milling and cryo-ET studies? Um, yes, but with sort of limited success, success at the mm -hmm. moment. Um, um, I know that this is this is definitely something that's been done at the moment. Um, we we used um, high pressure freezing and freeze fracture um, as a means to uh, prepare some samples for TEM, um, but it turned out that the conventional TEM was just as good in that case. But this is kind of the next phase of our work. So um, yeah, we we have limited experience with this. But again, Frederick would be would be the expert here, and I think that that's definitely where we want to go is to try and kind of branch out from the high, high pressure freezing and freeze fracture, not only to cryosem, but also, you know, as a preparative way to go into um, either to cryofib milling or to um, uh, TEM, which can give you higher resolution. I think uh, let's not forget that we also have Roland as an expert. And I know because I was visiting him a few weeks ago and you were talking exactly about this. So maybe Roland, if you have some comments about this. Yeah, it's um, much the same as other comments. We're, we're, we're playing around with this just now as well. It, it works in principle. The fracture certainly opens it up if the sample up. If you've used a high pressure freezer, you've got really great vertification. It's really a matter of handling the workflow to minimize contamination and ensure you've got enough surface detail to target it with a fib. But yeah, it, it actually works relatively well in practice. Great. Thanks. Um, a 
question for Frederick again. Why is a carbon coating required for cryo-SEM? Is, is one nanometer platinum not sufficient? Well, it all depends. There are different strategies you one can use. So, so typically, if you say I use one nanometer of platinum and you would rock the sample and tilt, the goal is to have a coating that is completely conductive. So restructuring mm -hmm. always reveals some topography. And because E-beam is very directive in the way it's coats, you can easily get uncoated uh, parts. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. So in some cases, you can use carbon. In some cases, you can just use platinum. So it really depends what you want to do. If you want to have shadowing, Mm -hmm. and you you don't rotate then maybe it's better to have at least a layer of carbon to not have any charging and i think roland has some more uh yeah i was just gonna say so if, if if you use a pure metal your grain structure will tend to be larger so if you evaporate both platinum carbon together if you go back to the work of hans gross roger webb you'll see that they're their coating is much finer by doing a combination evaporation for the fexem I, I only use platinum carbon but I apply it with multi-angle rotational shadowing. Um, that works particularly well, as Frederick was saying, but having even coating and nice conductivity. In the FEGSEM that I'm using, I know if you go to Andreas Kech in the University of Zurich, um, and I think uh, Paul Walzer as well does the same, that they will tend to do the platinum carbon followed by a carbon layer on top before going to the FEGSEM on a Zeiss instrument rather than the Joel because they found it gives a slightly better image quality for them. This is all down to the, the, the subtleties of the microscope and trying to get the best image quality. Um, yeah, essentially that, 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 that's the answer. Optimize it for your microscope. Always good advice, thanks. <laughs> um, this is a question um, specifically for Frederick, apparently. How do you transfer the HPF frozen sample to the ACE 900 without the VCT system? Is it possible? Yes, it is possible. I was not really too clear about that when I was uh, showing the instrument, but there are two ways of uh, loading a sample. The, the left part is basically using the VCT, as, as what I showed. This is typically done for cryo-CM. And then there's also a possibility to use the load lock so basically, you would just have the same holder, you add the samples, and you basically, it's a, a faster way of loading, unloading. Um, mm -hmm. And the idea is to use it more for replicas, because you can very easily take it out. And even you don't care about contamination, because you tore the sample anyway. So yes, mm -hmm. it is possible with the right uh, load lock. Great. Um, let's go back to Benjamin for a minute. We haven't heard from him in a while. How do you understand the chemical nature of the object you're imaging? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is this is the challenge for us. I mean, it's all well and good getting um, beautiful um, mm. images, which is nice. Um, but I guess the interpretation of, of what you're seeing is is sometimes the the major challenge. So we we have to kind of this is one of our um, arrows, I guess, in the in a in a multi technique tool set that we're trying to um, you know answer what is this blob that is growing and doing this and we uh, recently we used to some effect um, even though these are just cells and organic um, materials we used eds um, to at least tell us for example that the guanine crystals we're looking at have high very high nitrogen content compared to the rest of the um uh the tissue so we can kind of use eds on cryosem freeze fractured images to um, determine where the new guanine crystals are forming by the um, signal of nitrogen. This has proved to be quite um, useful for us recently. 
Um, so that's one that's one technique that can at least give you some limited um, elemental analysis. Um, David's question, by the way, is a very interesting one. So maybe you can also yes, uh, yes. raise this one. Um, this is something that we've do seen. Want, do you want to tackle that one? Well, I can't it tackle it because I, <laughs> I don't know the answer, but maybe I like the question and maybe Roland and Frederick can. Yeah, we've seen yeah I was going to do that one next. It yeah. does look interesting. <laughs> um, that we have seen recent um, recently this, I don't know, parts of the cell which are sort of um, heterogeneously etched, you know. Mm. Um, and yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What it is. <laughs> yeah. So the question that um, then is referring to is um, how much does the local water content or salt concentration in different tissue or cell structures impact the rate of sublimation during etching? Um, so Frederick or Roland, any ideas? <laughs> not, not really directly, but um, I think it's more the water content is important because Basically, what you do is sublimation is some kind of a, um, a freeze drying, for example. Mm -hmm. So basically, whatever is still uh, dissolved in the in the water, let's say, in cytoplasm, will simply just drop down. What cannot so so basically for the rate, I think maybe there's some kind of uh, thermal effects because of the holder. Um, of course, if you have very high temperatures, you need also so incubation. So maybe that can be the reason, but um, they would be minor, I would say. Yeah, I'd, I'd concur with Frederick on that. Certainly lipids won't etch out at all. So it's really a little bit due to the the makeup of that specific area in the tissue. And I see Fox commented that bad freezing quality also messes up the, the etching speeds. Yeah, so does, so does bad conductivity as well. Uh, but we try to use, you know, try to make sure our samples are as good as possible. You, you build up quite a lot of experience and, and try and focus on the good ones. In fact, with the ACE 900, when you fracture, you do get quite nice feedback on from the knife you you tend to have a pretty good idea if it, if it was well frozen and you've got a clean fracture plane before you even get to the the etching and coating stage um and this is also a question for all of you um from christina do you use any cryoprotectants for your sample preparation well, typically it's up to you to decide of course it's all depends on the thickness that you freeze at some mm -hmm. point if the sample it has a lot of water content. You will have to use uh, cryoprotectant. For example, for tissue, I like to use uh, PVP, uh, mm -hmm. polyphenyl which I like a lot. But I also make sure that the tissue is not too long in contact with any cryoprotectant. So you have to limit that. And it depends if you have a suspension, of course, they're more prone to, to be affected by the cryoprotectant. There are different types of cryoprotectant that will go inside the cells, not inside the cell, that will cause osmotic shock. So it really de depends on, on your sample, on the type of research and what you want to obtain from freeze fracturing images. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I, I, I certainly don't, as far as possible, use any cryoprotectant. Mm -hmm. I, I would reduce the sample volume before going to cryoprotectant. We, we, yeah, we, we sometimes do um, have to use um, things like Dextran or pvp um but yeah i mean to avoid it is 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 good um and to make the sample in our case to make the the the, the sections of tissue as as thin as we can um and then to optimize the amount of dextran is often critical to whether you get pre-fracturing um so the planchette opens up or whether you get a nice freeze fracture through the center of the tissue so um and to be as quick as possible and i think that was um Frederick's kind of if you watch Frederick's uh, videos on this <laughs> subject then this is uh yeah critical yeah. 
And um, do you use Freon um, to put the sample before putting the sample inside liquid nitrogen? I think this. No, I think I, I think that's been yeah. banned due to global warming. But it, it was traditionally <laughs> done a long time ago. People used to use a lot of Freon, but mm -hmm. um, no, you're you're going back a, back a really long time for that. I think if you want to plunge freeze in in nitrogen, you have to make a slush nitrogen, as I explained in the yeah in the in the webinar. So that's important. Yeah. Great. Um, let me go back to some of these other questions that I have here. Um, Frederick, would you say that sputtering is not the best coating method to be used? Isn't the grain size really big? So, the, of course, grain, si grain size is important. Uh, so there are different considerations here. Um, first of all, the grain size is bigger. Mm -hmm. And also the, the way of, of uh, evaporation is not directive. So it's a very diffuse way of coating the sample. So again, it depends on what you want to, to do afterwards. But again, if you have e-beam, you have a finer grain size, you will be able to have a better resolution in terms of imaging. So so this is what we recommend, but it really depends on what you want to get out of your fee-structuring surfaces. Yeah, thanks. Um, and Roland, how can we separate artifacts from real structures? <laughs> Practice. <laughs> <laughs> um, hours and hours and hours of hours of looking at replica. They are you particularly on the TEM where you get quite small pieces of replica and you know it's difficult to understand their complete context it takes a long time to build up real knowledge of which membrane which organelle you're actually looking at they all have a distinctive patterning of members particles they all have a distinctive sort of feel about them when you look at them and you build up quite a strong understanding over time. So you almost, it's like creating your own atlas to help inform you about what you're looking at. It's a lot easier on the cryo-SEM. You'll have a, almost a perfect, you know, three millimeter disc of, of vitreous material, beautifully fractured, which will give you much more relevant context to the, the fracture plane you're looking at. And with that, you can build up your knowledge a little bit quicker. But yeah, it's, it, it really comes down to experience and, and knowledge and, and being quite critical of what you're looking at as well. Don't, don't mm -hmm. accept what you look at as being the answer uh, just because you wanted it to be. Um, there's one more question that just came in. We covered the one about freeze fracturing, but there's a question. How many minutes do you evaporate platinum and carbon? It's uh, well in my webinar I used quite fast forward, but again it's I would say it's about the, the evaporation rate of platinum is typically around 0.09. It depends. You can ramp it up, but let's say it's 0 0.01, 0 0.13, sorry, and then for for uh, carbon it's 0 0.17. So it's about 20, 30 seconds, something like that, because the layers are typically one and a half, two, and carbon is typically four, so it's quite fast. Yeah, not even a minute then. <laughs> exactly. That's great. Um, and that brings us to the end of our seminar today. So thank you again, Frederick, Roland and Ben, for a very interesting presentations and a great discussion. Thank you. And, thank yeah. you as well. <laughs> it's great to have you. And of course, thanks to the audience for taking the time to attend and listen in. Um, if we did not get a chance to answer your question, they, please note that they will be addressed offline. So until next time, goodbye from all of us at Leica Microsystems and Microscopy Focus. 
we hope you enjoyed this episode of Listening from Bite Size Bio. To view the full presentation of this webinar or to browse the Listening series, please see the episode description for links. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists.